want to just continue to behold the Lamb this morning. And, and to do so, we're going to be in John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. You're going to see that the, the message title this morning is The Beginning, Origins. And, you know, it's, it's so fascinating. Last week, in fact, we looked at the purpose statement in the book of John. And let's go back there. It's John chapter 20, verses 20 through 31. Or, I'm sorry, verses 30 through 31. And it says this, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of why John's writing. That's what he wants us to believe. At the end of what these signs, these seven signs that he picks, he hand selects out of the life of Christ, he wants us to believe in Jesus. That means trust in him, rely upon him for salvation, to be confident that he's the Savior. And, and it's like when we get to John 1, be, before he gets into the signs, he wants you to know who Jesus Christ is. Because I think if he understands that if you know who he is, if you really know who Jesus Christ is, number one, you're not going to be surprised by the signs that he can do. That's not going to shock you. Now, you may be overwhelmed. You may be speechless. You may think, wow, this is awesome. I've got nothing to say about this man other than he's awesome, but you're not going to be surprised because when you find out who Jesus Christ is, nothing should shock you anymore. (laughs) The, The bigger Jesus Christ gets in our thinking, nothing should shock us anymore. You know, how many times in your life have you been going through a trial, a test, a tribulation, and you just don't see any exit strategy anywhere. You're like, I am just going to be buried in this. This is going to ruin my life. I remember in fourth grade, you know, I was uh, writing letters to a, to a young girl. I'm not going to mention her name. I still remember her first and last name. And I wrote a note and I, and I had three questions on there. I can't remember them all, but it was something like, do you like me? Will you go with me? And something else. And I put a yes, no, and I put a yes box and a no box. (laughs) She sends the letter back. She had originally checked all the no boxes. And she scribbled those out, and she added a third box, maybe. (laughs) And I was actually excited about that. (laughs) I said, hey, I got a chance. So we meet at the local roller skating rink. And you know what? She, She doesn't talk to me the whole night. I go, my mom still remembers this story. I went home in tears, fourth grader. I went home in tears. I still remember her name. I'm, I'm not even sure why I told that story. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. But I think it's this. I think it's this. Jesus Christ will not disappoint you. The more that you find out about him, he will not disappoint you. She obviously found out too much about me and was very disappointed. So it didn't, didn't end up working out. All right. Let's get into John chapter 1. And, and, and you see this phrase, in the beginning, right? This is how he starts verse 1 off. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So you see this repetition of this, this concept that he's with God. Now, we see this phrase, in the beginning. And when you see that, it should immediately take your minds to Genesis 1.1. This is exactly how the Bible started. 
right? And in fact, if you move all the sandwich meat out of verse one, it actually reads the same way. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, last word in verse one, God. That's exactly how Genesis 1-1 started. And what you're gonna see all throughout this passage that we're looking at this morning through the first five verses is you're gonna see all of these terms that he uses that you can find in the Genesis account. Light, right? God spoke light into existence. You're going to see darkness. That's going to be in the first five verses, right? You're going to see uh, the word, right? The, the spoken word. You're going to see creation. You're going to see all these things. In the beginning, God, it should just draw our attention back to Genesis 1.1. Now, notice that John doesn't start with a human genealogy like the other gospel writers do, right? Matthew starts his, you know, and this is like when you're doing your Bible reading, you're like, man, if I, if I can save some time, I'm just going to skip the genealogy. I mean, you can really save time when you skip Luke's genealogy because Luke, Matthew takes it back to Abraham. Where does Luke take his genealogy back? Adam. Takes him all the way back to Adam, right? Mark doesn't give a genealogy because the purpose for Mark is to present Jesus as a servant. And servants' genealogies really didn't matter in the Roman world. So Mark doesn't even give a genealogy. You could say John doesn't give a genealogy, but he does. He actually does. He takes it back to his divine genealogy. And what he's going to tell us about Jesus Christ is he has always existed. There's no one before him. He's going to tell us in the book of Revelation, same writer, that he's the alpha. It means he's the beginning. He, he never had a beginning. He ne- there was never a day in human history and eternity past that Jesus Christ was not already. That ought to blow our minds. <laughs> we can't even think in terms of infinity. And yet, that's exactly who Jesus Christ is In fact, when you see in verse three, he's gonna connect the Genesis account to Jesus Christ. When you read Genesis one going forward and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you now to see in the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. That ought to blow your mind. Because typically when we think about God in the Bible, we need to rethink because we always think the Bible's talking about God the Father. But you know what? The Bible sometimes says God and it's referring to God the Son. And sometimes the Bible says God and it's referring to God the Spirit. Just an incredible, mind-blowing thing as we dive into the first few verses here. And so in the beginning was the word. Now, one of the things we want to see in this verse, very important. I try, you know, I'm a geek. I like Greek. I just enjoy it. I know that everyone doesn't. I really try to stay away from it because I don't want anyone to think, well, the only way I can study the Bible is if I know Greek. That's not true. You can, study, you can study and read and learn the Bible just by reading it in English. It's totally fine. Sometimes there's nuances here that I think will, will bolster your faith. So I bring it out. Every time this word was is used in this passage, it's used in the imperfect tense, okay? Very important to understand the perfect tense because what the thrust is, it's an ongoing action that's in process in the past, And so everything that we're looking at here in the beginning was the word and the word was God, was with God and the word was God. What it's saying is that Jesus was always these things in the past. There wasn't a start date there. And and by the way, we we go on in the Bible. We know there's not going to be an end date, right? He goes on, he lives into eternity. So he was ongoing action or process 
in the past. Now, the first phrase we see there is, and we're going to see three of them, is the word was always in the past. In other words, he always existed. But before we get too far, I mean, those of us that have grown up in church, we know who the word is. We, we just know it's Jesus. But let's let the text actually determine that for us. Let's let the text kind of prove that for us, if you will. And let's go uh, to verse 14. Because verse 14 says what? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so whoever we're talking about here, the, the word actually took on a human body, became flesh. And then as we trace through the rest of the passage, you're going to see that all of these pronouns in chapter one, if you just trace it back, it's going to link up to Jesus Christ. This is who we're talking about here. John uses this word, word, uh, in a very strategic way. And we'll talk about that here in a second, because both of John's audiences, uh, by the way, this is the only place where this title is used for the Lord. John's the only one that kind of grabs hold of this. But it's really fascinating because when you look at the word, uh, when you look at the word, word, um, what you're going to see is uh, Greek philosophers use this word to describe divine reason. So there, there was a divine aspect to even this word in Greek philosophy that John, I think, uh, encaptures for his own purpose. And then in Judaism, do you know that they would oftentimes use a Hebrew or Aramaic word that meant word for God? so that they wouldn't blaspheme. You know, Jews were very careful about not using the name of God because they didn't even want to get close to blaspheming. And so they would use the Aramaic form of the word that John used, which is logos. That's what we, we see um, in the Greek. And so both of these types of audiences, Jews and Gentiles, would have, would have gravitated toward this description. It would have caught their attention. What, the, the word, huh? He's talking about something or someone divine. This is what would have captured their attention, this, this Greek word, logos, referring to God. And oh, by the way, anyone, any Jew that was astute with Old Testament prophecy, you know, I'm going to just show you two Christmas prophecies that tell us exactly what John 1.1 just told us. When John says, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was always the word. In other words, the word, Jesus Christ, the son of God's eternal he never had a beginning. We see that in the Old Testament. This should not have been a surprise. In fact, what about Micah 5.2, right? Typically, we focus on the first part of that verse, right? You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. In other words, where's Jesus going to be born? He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then we kind of move on from the verse. Look at the end. Let's keep reading, though. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel. Look at this. Whose goings forth are from of old, from where? Everlasting, into the past. So John, John is bringing this out. Clearly, this should not have been a shock to anybody that when the Messiah came, he was going to step into time and space in a human body, but that was not his beginning. He never had a beginning. He was from everlasting past. What about Isaiah 9, 6? Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given, right? Child born, point in time. Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, 0 AD or 4, 4 BC, however you want to date his birth. Back then, there was a time he entered the world as a child born. But you know what? 
a son was given. That means if he was given, he existed before he was born. And this is exactly what we see in the Old Testament. This is exactly what John is teaching here. Now we see the second description. Again, why is John spending time describing Jesus Christ? Because he doesn't want you blown away. He wants you, when he starts doing these signs, you're going to be like, of course he can do that. He's God. Of course Jesus can do that. He's awesome. He's special. He's unique. He's the most unique person who's ever stepped foot on this earth because he's fully God and fully man. This is what John wants to convince us of, but he does it with really careful language. The Spirit of God is is literally breathing his words through John as he's recording this because John is going to sidestep some landmines. You know, there's times when you begin to talk about the person of Jesus Christ and the Trinity, and sometimes you just, it's better just to put your hand over your mouth because the more you talk, the more trouble you're going to get into. (laughs) You know, it's it's one of those things. Well, John is very precise here, and I want to kind of draw that out as we kind of look at this next phrase because he says now the word was with God. The word was always with God in the past. There was, you could say it this way, there was never a time in the past that Jesus was not with God the Father. Now, I mentioned this, we have this tendency in Bible study. Every time we see the word God, we automatically assume it's talking about the Father. Have you ever caught yourself doing that, by the way? I do it naturally. I have to remind myself, remind myself, okay, it says God, all right, now I need to go to the context and see what member of the Trinity is he talking about? Because God is the Son, God is the Father, and God is the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one essence, one God, but three distinct persons. That's what we're going to get out of the next two phrases, is that the Word was always with God, and then he's going to say the very next phrase, and the Word was God. Now, when you're dealing in logic, that verse right there just implodes on itself. That makes absolutely no sense. But when you understand the nature of the triune God, when you understand that even when you go to the Old Testament and you look at the Hebrew word Elohim, that im is a plural ending. It allows for three people, three personages forming one God. And so even the Jews, looking back, could have seen a plurality of personhood within the triune Godhead, the united Godhead. And what's really interesting about that is it says that Jesus is with God. The other thing that we see is that God is clearly referring to God the Father here in this passage. So I'm not saying it's not here. This is exactly what he's talking about. But notice what he's doing. He's distinguishing the word from God the Father. They're not the same. There was a a heresy that uh, came into being called Sabellianism. You might've heard it referred to as modalism. And what they say is that, that God uh, just manifests himself in different roles throughout time in history. And, and, and I like it this way, although this, is, this just helps me see it better. It's like God is, is up there and he's got three different hats. He's got the father hat, the son hat, and the spirit hat. And then when he's doing the son things, he puts his son hat on and he goes out and does son things. And then when he's doing the father things, he puts his son hat off and he puts on his father hat and he goes out and does, does father things. That's modalism. One God, he just has different duties and stuff. The problem is, is when you get to Jesus's baptism, they're all three there at the same time. So modalism kind of breaks down in that sense. But then you've got another heresy that I think John addresses with the third phrase here in in verse one, and that's uh, Arianism, which the Jehovah's Witnesses have 
regurgitated and reemphasized, and that is that Jesus is a God. He's a little bit more than man, but he's a little bit less than God. He's somewhere kind of in between. John's language here doesn't allow that to be a good interpretation. That is not true. Jesus is very God, and he's always been God. That's what we're going to look in this passage. So you see this really careful description that John is giving. One of the other things, um, as we see, is, is I'm going to bring up this Trinity picture, and I think this is probably one of the most helpful graphs. If you have a problem with the Trinity, or you're just like, man, I don't know how this works. I mean, in a sense, join the club. I mean, I think it's a, uh, it's a divine concept, and sometimes it's hard to understand, but I do like this this diagram if you've never seen it. And let me just show you kind of how this works. We see there that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But the other thing is they're not each other. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's not the Father. There's distinction in personhood, but there's oneness in essence. Each person is fully God. And what you see here in John is, is again, you see this, the, the word, the son was with God, the father. And then it comes back and says, and the son's God. That's what it's going to say in that third phrase. Again, putting that together, it seems like it should implode <laughs> upon itself, but this is what the spirit of God has motivated John to write. A couple of other things that I just find really fascinating here is the Greek preposition that John uses here that's translated with. Very significant. Lots of options to choose from here by John, but the Spirit of God leads him to this word, and I want to tell you why it's significant. He could have picked uh, the Greek word meta, and uh, meta simply means this. It means amid or in the midst, among. It just implies accompaniment. Now, there's nothing wrong with that word. If, if Jesus is with the Father, then they accompany one, one another. That's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that word at all, but he doesn't choose that word. He doesn't choose the Greek preposition para, which means near, nearby. It means notion of immediate vicinity or proximity. If you use that word, it just means that Jesus is not off in some part of heaven and God the Father, and they never see each other, that they're close. So he could have used that word, and that would have been fine too. But he uses the Greek preposition pros, which implies much more. In fact, pros implies that it's regularly expressing the presence of one person with another. It's describing fellowship. And what it's telling us is this, is God the Son and God the Father are in constant fellowship in eternity past with one another. That there wasn't ever a day where they were out of fellowship. That's what's being emphasized here. Now that's pretty incredible. Anybody ever have a roommate? How long before fellowship was broken with your roommate? Anybody been married? How long before fellowship was broken at some level? We can't even get along with the person we love most in the world. And here's God the Son with God the Father, and they have always been in fellowship, unified, united with one another. That right there is mind-blowing in and of itself. So pros means, again, more than meta or para. It's telling us that they were in complete unity and fellowship with one another, and that is just, should be mind-blowing. By the way, there is one event in the history of the world where fellowship was disrupted between the Son and the Father. You know what that event was? The cross. 
That's when Jesus Christ, through death, was separated for the first time in eternity's history from the Father. And he did that for you. And he did that for me. He was completely separated. And I think, you know, as Jesus is agonizing in the garden, we, we often, we often uh, read into his agony. We read into human motives and we say, man, he doesn't, he's, he's concerned about the spikes that are going to go through his hand. He's concerned about the whipping that he's going to receive. He's concerned about them plucking his beard. And you know what? I think that's part of it. I think that was going to be painful. But you know what I think he may have been most concerned about and most agonizing over? That time out of fellowship with his father paying that sin debt for each one of us where he experienced separation, death. That's, that's what death is, separation from his father. And that's why I believe John, Jesus in John 17, when we get there, that high priestly prayer, you know what he's gonna pray for? He's gonna pray for restored glory that he had with the father before his incarnation. That's what he's looking forward to the most. For the joy set before him, what was the joy set before him? Accomplishing salvation's plan and being restored to fellowship with the father and joining him again. This is, I believe, what was on the heart and mind of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, but, but John is just telling us they've always been unified together. They've always been together. And so the thrust of verse two, which is the repetition of this phrase, is simply this, complete unity, complete fellowship from eternity past. There was never a day in human history they weren't unified or in fellowship. And by the way, this is also why as we get into John, Jesus is gonna say, I don't say anything that I don't hear the Father say. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't want me to do. Why? Because he's in complete fellowship with them. That's, it's born out even in his earthly life. And so it's pretty amazing. And now we get to the third phrase here. And that is the word was always God in the past. And this is where I believe that understanding the triune nature of God is so key, as I've said before. Otherwise, this, this whole thing just implodes on itself. John's just writing all these contradictory things. But again, he's very careful here. And then what this verse tells us is that Jesus Christ was always God. He didn't become God. He didn't graduate to, to Godhood. He didn't perform in a such a way that he got a promotion to Godhood. He was always God from eternity past. And you know, it's really fascinating uh, about this verse because um, he always was, is, and will be God. You know, Hebrews 13, eight says what? Jesus Christ, the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. There's never a point in time where he is not God or was not God. Some people, there, there's heresies that have arisen all throughout church history that said right before he went to the cross, his, his godhood left him and then he died. I mean, there's all these crazy things. This doesn't allow for that. He's always God. He's God in essence. He could never cease being God. You know, Philippians 2, let's go there. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Philippians 2, 6, it says, who being in the form of God, in other words, in essence, he's God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He, he was always God, even when he took a human body. He still was God because that is who he is. He can never cease being God. One of the things that you see in the Greek is, is the actual word order. You know, um, if you've ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness you, and, and you've ever read in their version of the Bible, verse 1 reads a little bit different. 
It reads like this, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was a God. I don't know if you knew that about the Jehovah's Witness Bible. It's called the New World Translation. I keep wanting to say New World Order, but that's, uh, that's wrestling. The New World Translation. And the reason that they do that is because God there, the word God is not articulated. It doesn't have a V. But here's what's really interesting. The, the word order is actually, and God was the word. That's the actual word order in the Greek. And God was the word. That's, that's how it's actually ordered in the Greek. And it really prevents, again, a heresy of modalism. Because if John were to say, and the word was the God, now he's equating the word to the Father, and now it really implodes on itself. Now he's saying they're the same one, but he just said he's with God. And so it's just, it's interesting. Like I said, that's a little Greek geeky, but it's, it's interesting the technicalities in this verse, the way the Spirit of God led John to record this, it just fits perfect theology and helps us identify who the person of Jesus Christ really is. And so uh, it's really, really uh, exciting, I believe. And so as we get to verse three, one of the things we've been looking at is Jesus's pre-incarnate existence, that he always existed, that he was always in unity and fellowship with God, and he always was God. At every point in the past, he's always been God. Now we're going to look at his pre-incarnate ministry, if you will, towards the world. And that's what we're going to get into in verse 3. And what we're going to read in verse 3 is this, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, I want you to notice the all-encompassing words used in this verse. He says, all things were made through him. Nothing that was made was made. And when you start talking about the word all in the scriptures, he means all. <laughs> he means angels. He means every tree that you've ever seen, every mountain that you've ever seen, every snow-capped mountain or hill, every waterfall you've ever seen, every beach, every, every grain of sand, every drop of water. Jesus Christ has made nothing that you can see was made without his agency. And you're like, you're thinking to yourself, I mean, some of us know this, but I hope that captures your imagination to understand who your Savior is. He is incredible. He is special beyond, I can't even think of superlatives to describe Jesus Christ because he's that awesome. He's that amazing. This is what John wants us to realize. And I love this. He uses this verb, were made. Were made. The, the word itself means to come into existence or come to, to begin to be. It, it's, it's implying origin. It can be natural causes or special agencies that, that bring something into existence. Nothing was brought into existence unless it was done by Jesus Christ. And I want you just to think about that. That is mind-blowing. That means every time you walk outside and look at nature, you should be thinking, Jesus Christ is awesome. Now, I get it. Maybe you got a tree that, you know, has fallen on your house. Or, I mean, yeah. I mean it's, sometimes we get a little upset with nature. But I'm just saying that the, the pure creative genius, the pure creative power, and we get, this, we get this description in Genesis. How'd he do it? 
did he do it by like grinding it out for like, you know, two years? You know, did, did he do it by, by discovering oil and, and processing petroleum and figuring out how to isolate different? No. He just said light and light just appeared. He just created things by the word of his mouth. We never, we've never seen anybody like him. That's how amazing he is. And this is what John is bringing out because he's about to talk about this earthly life and these signs. And he's going to know, and, and you know, it's so unfortunate in our day, people will say, well, Jesus was just a great prophet. Jesus was a great teacher. And you know, when people say that, I think they sincerely are trying to compliment Jesus. But it's like when someone has tried to compliment you before and it's actually what we call a backhanded compliment. It's actually disrespectful. Jesus isn't a great teacher. He's the creator of the world. And, and his teaching is incredible because of who he is. Not because he's perfected and honed his craft and teaching. It's because of who he is is why he's so amazing. And so to say he's a great teacher or a great man or a great prophet is a slap in the face of who Jesus Christ is. He's way more than that. Way more than that. In fact, words can't even describe who Jesus Christ is. I, I think these biblical writers sometimes run out of superlatives to say how awesome he is. And so Jesus Christ brought into being everything. You know what else we learn about this verb is that it's in the aorist tense. It's a point in time. There was a point in time where Jesus Christ made everything. And if we tie that into the Bible, it's really clear when that point in time was, right? It's the six days of creation. Genesis chapter one, that's when he brought it all into being, which to me um, really just nails evolution. And it's not to say things don't change. It's not to say things don't, don't adapt. They do. But the point is this, you, you adapt with something that's already there and it wasn't there until Jesus Christ made it. Things don't change or grow or adapt until it's there. And this verse tells us that when Jesus Christ made all things, nothing was made without him. He's the one who brought it into existence, period. All things means all things. And then we see it's through him. And really through him is just this, this word that means agency. It was through his power. He was the one that did it. Again, when you see Genesis 1 and you say, God created the heavens and the earth, you should see Jesus Christ, the son created the heavens and the earth. He was the agent. It was through him that all things were brought into existence. And you know, what's really fascinating about that <clears throat> is when you get to the book of Revelation, you're gonna see that in the throne room of heaven in Revelation chapter four and Revelation chapter five, that the, the worship team of heaven, the 24 elders and the angels and, and whoever else is mentioned there, they worship Jesus Christ for two primary reasons. Really fascinating as we tie in John chapter one. I wanna bring those up. Revelation 4, 11. You know, we, we ended, Josh and uh, Julie ended with the song that he's worthy, right? You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will, they exist and were created. Jump down to Revelation chapter five, verse nine. Now why are they worshiping him? They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, uh, and I can't read that. People and nation. It was a little too light on the backboard there. 
But the point is this, why is he worshiped? He's the creator, he's the redeemer. What did he redeem? Fallen creation, fallen man. He loved us so much that he came and paid the price to redeem us and buy us back so that we might be with him forever. That's why he's gonna be worshiped. And we see this here in John 1. Now, uh, John now provides kind of a clarifying phrase, uh, which says this, and, uh, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, to say that without him, nothing was made is to say that without his agency, nothing came into existence. Again, this blows evolution out of the water. To say that somehow something evolved out of some cosmic bang or slime or crystals deposited by, I mean, there's, I mean, that theory is just growing leaps and bounds. It's, it kind of reminds me of the old fish story, right? The fish I caught when I was five is now kind of getting bigger and bigger as I, as I grow older. That's exactly what's happened with, with evolution. There's just more theories because they, they know their theories stink. And they're trying to come up with something better on the fly. They just don't have it. That's their origin story. I get it. We got a better origin story. It's, it's found right here in the word of God. And so it just blows that away. Nothing was made without his agency. Nothing came into existence without Jesus Christ bringing it into existence. Interestingly enough, the use of the last, uh, that, that phrase was made, the very last verb in verse three is actually used uh, in the perfect tense. And simply put, that just means completed action in the past with ongoing results. And we talked about, we, we read Colossians 1 um, earlier for communion. And Colossians 1, 17 says, and in him all things what? Hold together. So, you know, there's this view of God sometimes that he's, he's like this watchmaker. He made the watch and then he just leaves the building, lets the watch run. He doesn't pay attention to anything anymore as if God's not still paying attention to his creation. What this tells us is this, when Jesus Christ brought things into existence, he stayed intimately involved in the affairs of his creation. He kept them together. They were made and they remain made or maintained. This is the emphasis here with that word. And so what he's saying is simply this, nothing was brought into existence. When you look outside, look around and think about Jesus Christ and his creative majesty and what he was able to do in creating. Now, let's bring up uh, Colossians 1, 16 through 17, which I read earlier, uh, which says this, for by him, there's that agency again. Notice all things, John 1, were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Again, all things were created, how? Through him, John 1, 3, same thing, through his agency and for him, he is before all things and in him, all things consist. Again, they were made and they remain created and sustained because Jesus Christ is intimately involved in his creation. And so now we've looked at Jesus in eternity past. We've looked at a pre-incarnate work or ministry of creation in time past, Genesis 1. Now in verses 4 through 5, we're going to look at Jesus's incarnate ministry to men. And he's going to verbalize it this way, is that Jesus Christ has always been life. We've, we've got to get in our mind, and I, and I, and I hope to uh, communicate this clearly, because I think when, you, when we grasp this, this is going to be so meaningful. Sometimes I think we think, well, when, 
When Jesus gives us eternal life, and we'll even use this phrase, I, I'm guilty of it, right? Your, your ticket to heaven, right? We think, here, oh yeah, here's eternal life. And we think it's just something that he gives to us. And what we're going to find is just like the false cliche, you know, and we heard this at the fair lot, how, you know, what does God require someone to go to heaven? That's one of the questions. What do you have to do to be saved? And a lot of people say you have to give your life to Jesus Christ. You hear that a lot. It's a very common cliche, not taught in the Bible, but very common cliche. In fact, I always ask them, I was like, well, let me give you a multiple choice selection. If God were, if you were to appear before God in heaven and he were to ask you, why should I let you in? Would you say, A, I gave my life for Christ, or B, he gave his life for me? You see the difference? One way, it's all about what I'm doing for God. The other way is biblical. What has God done for you? And we've got this mindset sometimes. I think that, that God is just giving us eternal life like a ticket. He's not giving you eternal life like a ticket. He's giving you his son. He's uniting you to his son. And Jesus Christ is life. He is life. You don't get a ticket for eternal life. You get the son of God who is life. And what we're going to learn in this verse, not only is, is he life today, he's always been life. That's what the verb tense was is going to bring out. And so as we go into verses four and five, let's read it. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so we see in him was life, was again, imperfect tense, ongoing action in the past. Life has always been found in Jesus Christ. Always. He's the source of life. We saw in verse three, he's the originator of life, creation on this earth. He will always contain life. This is, by the way, why you cannot lose your salvation. It has nothing to do with your future behavior. The moment you trust in Christ, the Spirit of God joins you to Jesus Christ. He's life. You can't be unjoined. You're sealed. He lives forever. You live forever. Do you deserve that? No, not even on your best day. I don't deserve it either, just in case you're wondering. None of us deserve that. But you know what? That's what God is determined to do. That's how God is determined to save you. And if you want to know what you have now that you're in Christ, just go read Ephesians chapter one. You talk about mind-blowing. The resources that you and I possess now because we're united to his son, one of which is we have life that we can never lose. Why? Not because he gave us a ticket and we got to hold on to the ticket and fold it in our pocket and make sure we keep a guard of it. No, he's united you to his son. So if you ever think that Jesus can lose you or stop holding your hand, then I guess you could lose eternal life. I just don't believe that about my Jesus. John 10 tells me he's, he's got me in the palm of his hand. His father's got me in the palm of his hand. That's how safe I am. They're grabbing hold of me. I'm not having to grab hold of them. That's why I'm saved. That's why I have eternal life is because they will not let go of me. That's what the Bible teaches. And so it's not eternal life as a ticket. It is that Jesus himself is life. Again, when Genesis 2-7 tells us that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim in the Hebrew, breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils to make him a living being, guess who did that? I believe that was Jesus Christ. Because in him is life. 
always been life. And so when you, and this is what's so interesting, and I, okay, I'm gonna open a can of worms here, but this is why I think it's so interesting in Romans 10, nine. What does Paul want the Jewish people to confess? That Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Yahweh, that he is Yahweh Elohim of the Old Testament. He wants them to see that connection, that what John is saying here, the word was always in the past God. This is what he wants them to see. And so he's the one who breathed life into Adam. Why could he do that? Because he's the very source of life. He is life. Again, uh, what do we know? John 14, 6. I know we're jumping ahead in John, but why not? It's awesome truth. Who cares if we're going to see it again in the future? I'm not spoiling it for anybody. John, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a life, not some of the life, but the life. Very unique, distinct, uh, exclusive. This is why when people also say, well, I... You know, I love Jesus, but I think we're worshiping the same God, Buddha, Hindu, blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry. Jesus just doesn't allow for that. He's super exclusive. Now, that gets people fired up and upset sometimes. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, he's the one that said it. He's the one that said, I'm, I'm the life. There's no life found in anybody other than Jesus Christ. That's just what the scriptures teach. So you can... We can try to make ourselves feel better. And you've seen the bumper sticker, coexist. They're basically all saying the same thing. They are not saying the same thing. Let me tell you what every, you know what? Let me, let me restate that. We're saying something different than what everybody else is saying. Everybody else is saying this. You've got to sacrifice something for God. You got to do something for God. You have to behave in a certain way to appease God. We're not saying that at all. We're saying God has sacrificed his dearly beloved son for you. God has done something for you that you could not do for yourself because you could never do it for yourself. That's different. Like, don't lump us in with everybody else. You want to lump everybody else in that lumpy bowl of oatmeal? Go ahead. We're not a lumpy bowl of oatmeal. We don't even belong there. We're saying something totally different. Jesus is saying something totally different. He's unique and distinct. And again, John is bringing this out. Now, one of the things that we see from verse four and five, is, is it says, not only in him was life, always in the past, but then he says, and the life, the life of Jesus, sourced in Jesus, was the light of men. Always the light of men, is what he's saying, in the past. And so the very life that Jesus always was in the past was always the light of men. And that's, I tell you, I had to think about that a little bit. It's like, what does that mean exactly? What is he trying to communicate here. And I think what he's trying to communicate is simply this. The light of men refers to the illumination of man, their, their origin, their purposes, if you will. Why did God put them on earth, the, the course of their being? And I think it's even better explained in Romans because with every person, uh, with, with the life that they possess from the creator, they're also given a little bit of light. We call that reason. We call that conscience. And this is why in Romans chapter one, let's go there. Romans chapter one, uh, verses 19 through 20, Paul writes this, because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them, right? They, they, can, they, they can see it. How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly, again, seen, 
This is, this is that light. They, they see his invisible attributes being understood by the things that are made. And there's that, that clarity of understanding that light that as you look out on the creation of the world, you know there's a God. They can clearly see this. They understand it by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so Jesus Christ, the life, uh, provides light for men. Now, that's light that every man, woman, and child possess the moment that they're born. But you know what? That light, when given additional revelation and light, needs to grow, needs to be responded to. And at some point, people need to come into the light of the special revelation of God's word. They need to respond to what they know so that they can get more light. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ wants to provide. There's a reason that Jesus is going to carry this theme throughout the book of John, this idea of life and light. We're going to see that. John's going to keep bringing these two things up. In fact, a friend of mine preached a sermon series on the book of John years ago, and he actually titled it Light and Life because of this verse. Because it's going to be streamed throughout the book, and we want to see how when light is presented to people, some people respond to it, and some people reject it. And that's what we're going to see really carry out in the book of John. By the way, it's really interesting because when you get to uh, John chapter 3, I love the, the wording that Jesus provides here with Nicodemus in verse three, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, notice how he phrases this, one, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so although there is this natural light of conscience and reasons, we are all spiritually blind. And we need the, the light of the glory of the gospel to shine so that we can see it and respond to it. And oh, by the way, why do people reject this? This is great news, right? Well, let me just show you quickly again as we continue this light theme. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. This is why people don't respond to this great news. It says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We've got an enemy working against this. This whole process of shining the light of the gospel, who Jesus Christ is, what he accomplished, what he's all about. We've got an enemy attempting to blind people, which is really tragic. And that really brings us kind of to that, that last phrase. The, the light shines into the darkness. And again, what does, what does light do? It's designed to shine into a dark room and provide eyesight. It's, the, it's designed to pierce the darkness. And we're going to see that that was the ministry of Jesus Christ. But we're also going to see, unfortunately, the light of men doesn't always uh, accomplish the purpose it was designed for. That men, women, and children oftentimes reject the light. We're going to see that actually next week as we get into a little bit further into John 1. Even though the light of the world has come, men are going to reject the light. They are going to choose darkness over the light. In fact, he goes on to say that the darkness did not comprehend it. It's a really interesting word that John uses here. It means to apprehend, to lay hold of, or to seize, to grab violently. It was used of athletic public games. It meant to obtain the prize with eager and strenuous, trying to, to grab hold of it. And he's saying the darkness didn't comprehend it. The, the darkness didn't grab hold of it. There was their opportunity. 
They could could see the light of the world in person. They could understand the fulfillment of prophecy. He was right there. They just didn't seize it. They just let it pass by. In fact, they rejected it, we're going to see. In fact, what we learn from the scriptures and what we're going to see through the book of John is that more people reject Jesus Christ than trust in him. Now, go figure that. That blows my mind. We've got good news that we want to shout from the rooftop that God does not want to condemn you and send you to hell. He's provided a solution. His solution is found in the person of his son who died for you and paid the very penalty you deserve to pay. You don't have to face it. He raised him from the the dead to convince you and I that we can trust him alone for our salvation. And people say, no, I'll pass. I'm not interested in that. What else are you interested in? You... Literally, do you want to pay your sin debt yourself? Why would you not be interested in God's solution? It's not like he said you got to marry, uh, you know, an ugly girl and you got to, you know, eat uh, asparagus the rest of your life to go to heaven. And some people are like, no, I'll pass on that. I think I've got something better. He's offering to you for free. There's no better. And I know we grow up thinking there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. But this is free. And the reason it's free is because Jesus paid it all. And you know, the darkness did not comprehend it. They simply rejected the light. And we're going to see that uh, even borne out more clearly next week. And so let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this identification of the person of Jesus Christ. Wow, he, I don't even know what to say more, Lord, than he's, he's amazing. We, we understand God, why you were satisfied with him. We understand why you were satisfied with the payment he made for our sins. We are so grateful to him and will be for eternity for doing something for us that uh, we did not deserve. Lord, we were your enemies. And yet while we're still sinners, your dearly beloved son came and died for us and paid the very penalty that we deserve to pay. We're so grateful. And it's in his name we pray, amen.